0: Couple things, so I, put, I updated the, um, the Canvas page, put some more readings on there for you because we'll start chapter two today, and um, I put some homework on there. I promised you I would show you how to do the first uh, homework problem in R, which I will do, and I actually suspect that I don't have R on this laptop, so you may get an impromptu demonstration on how to install it on a Mac. <laughs> we can do it, on, I've got Windows on here too, so we could do it on Windows uh, if you prefer. Um, any questions about anything? at this stage. It's a little early for the when will the semester be over. (laughs) It takes an entire week of my lectures to be in that mode. All right, either that or you're just really, really serious people. So let's assume that you're just very serious. If you were serious though, you'd have questions. Will you show us how to get the data because I for some reason, I could not figure out how USA Today allows you to access their database. So I had to. I ended up finding an Excel sheet with all the players and salary, but it was from something completely different. There, there should be on the website for the textbook. I've downloaded it. Find it. Yeah. Well, okay. there Yeah. Just, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I tried to follow it. the process and everything went there. Yeah. Oh, I can show you. Um, there, I did find it on the the. Uh, Wiley web page, but it wasn't very easy. There's a link in there somewhere It's data sets and extra things or something like that, but I have it. I can give it to you.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, good. Anything else? Okay, so wh- where we were at on Friday, uh, I started talking about hypothesis tests and how we make decisions, and we had an example which had, as a null hypothesis, that the population mean was equal to 68 degrees Fahrenheit and an alternative that the population mean was not equal to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And I gave an example where we collected some data from a sample. Did I say the sample size? Better get it correct, 36? Yeah, everything has sixes in it. So we take a sample, n equals 36, and we're going to assume that the population standard deviation is equal to 3.6. And by the way, that means we know that the, the uh, standard deviation of the sample, the sampling distribution of the mean, is equal to 3.6 over the square root of 36, which is equal to 0.6. In my notes, I'm I'm going to miss the the opportunity when I uh, 0.6, and that's also in degrees Fahrenheit. Missed the opportunity that I always have to tell the, the, my undergrad students that I have math performance anxiety. Meaning I can't do simple addition on the board, I screw it up. Two plus two is, I, I can't remember, I don't know what it is. So I have to work it all out of my notes because I have math performance anxiety. I told the story in my regression class about six years ago, and then we have it in the school. We have this uh, banquet in the spring every time, and they do these gag gifts. And student, one of the students in the class made a giant abacus for me with, with big wiffle balls and said, this is to help me with my math performance anxiety. Don't, don't feel the need to re- reproduce that, but anyway, <laughs> math performance anxiety. And I also violated my my rule already which was not to write anything on the board that you couldn't read so remember the standard error of the mean is the standard deviation divided by the square root of the sample size. Okay, So that's the standard error of the mean normally we don't know the population standard deviation we would replace this with the um, with the um, sample standard deviation Okay, so what we can, what we, what we decided is that we go out and we take a sample and we get some value. How do we decide using the data we've collected whether we're going to uh, reject the null hypothesis or not? And the, the system that we've set up is to determine that if the sample under the null distribution is un, unusual, then we decide that the um, null hypothesis must be false. The question is how unusual does it have to be? And I said if this, If the sample mean here, if we say the population mean under our null is 68, if the sample mean comes out to be 95, it would be very hot here in the UP, but you'd say that's probably far enough away from the value under the null, the null can't be true. But how do you decide what far is in an objective sense? Well, we decide what far is by setting our our alpha rate. So we can draw the, the sampling distribution of the mean under the null hypothesis. We know it's going to be shaped like a normal distribution. If this is under the null, then this thing has to be centered on 68, and there's going to be plus or minus one standard deviation is going to be 0.6. There's going to be some value out here on either edge of the distribution. I'm gonna call this an X-bar critical upper and an X-bar critical lower that are far enough away from the mean under the null hypothesis that we decide that the, the null hypothesis can't be true. If we get a sample mean out here or out here, we decide it can't be true. We call this thing the rejection region and we commonly set it to alpha is 0.05. So in this case, this is equal to alpha over, alpha over two because we got to set the total area of the rejection region to 5% if we have a two tailed test we, we uh, separate it into two. So this is gonna be alpha over two, all right? So we can actually determine what these critical values are by taking this distribution and centering and scaling. We can convert this distribution, which we know follows a normal distribution. And if the null is true, it has a mean of 68 and it has a standard deviation of 0.6. So we can create, we can convert these to z-scores by just converting every value from the distribution. So we can put in here whatever our X-bar critical upper is, and we'll subtract the mean and divide by the standard deviation. We can actually put in those values under the null hypothesis. The mean is 68, so that's our critical upper minus 68 divided by 0.6, right? And if we've set alpha is equal to 0.02, or sorry, alpha equals 0.05, we know that our critical z quantile is, we can look it up in a table. So if you go to a standard normal distribution, right? what is this this critical z quantile where this is equal to um, 0.025 or alpha over 2? Well, you look it up in a z table. Or you can look it up in R using the um, QNORM function. The QNORM function gives you the quantile if you give it the probability to the left of that quantile for a standard normal if you don't give it any arguments, the default. So if we give it the probability probability to the left of this quantile has to be 1 minus the probability to the right, which would be 0.975. Like that, And this would return for us 1.96, and we, I just happen to know that, because it's a very standard quantile. Okay? So from the z-distribution, our rejection region is defined by the quantile 1.96, greater than 1.96. And you don't really need to go to the table because you know the z-distribution is um, Uh, symmetric so this has to be minus 1.96 because the standard normal is centered on zero. Does that make sense? So I'm gonna put the critical quantile in here. If you do some algebra and solve for this, solve for this X bar critical upper, you get 69.18 and because these things actually have units This is also degrees Fahrenheit. If you follow the same process and substitute for the lower critical, the critical lower, put in the critical lower here and put in minus 1.96 here, you're gonna get your X bar critical lower. And like I say, because I have math performance anxiety, I get 66.82. And the way you draw your decision is compare this sample mean, whatever it was, to your critical values. If it's greater than 69.18 or less than 66.82, then if the null hypothesis is true, that would happen less than 5% of the time. If the null hypothesis is true, you'll get a sample mean less than 66.82, or greater than 69.18, less than 5% of the time. And we've nominated 5% to be unusual enough that we'll reject the null. So you make your decision by comparing the sample mean that you get to these critical values, and you're done. Does that make sense? Yep. So it makes sense, but how many times do you do a sample mean take one sample sample. yeah we'll get into how you might make decisions about how you collect that sample in a minute now this is your textbook talks about this method this is sort of establishing the critical value method but normally we don't do this when we conduct a hypothesis test you don't set everything up ahead of time including the critical values and then run off and collect a sample mean Usually, we, we may set up the hypothesis, and you should do this, by the way, in order to be unbiased. You should also set up your hypotheses and choose your alpha level before you go collect data. Because if you collect a sample and it's 69.19, uh, you might say, I don't know, maybe I should increase alpha or decrease alpha a little bit to spread out those rejection regions that I can reject my null. You know, actually, or the other way around, 0.17, right? make off a little bigger so I can reject my null. So if you set these, the way to be unbiased in your hypothesis testing is establish your hypotheses, whether it's one or two tailed, pick your alpha level, then go and collect data. And when you do, usually what you do is you come back with a mean. So this is the other way of looking at it. We come back and we find a sample mean of 70. Now what do we do? Well, you've already done this, so we know what the decision is. But let's say we hadn't calculated these values. Well, we can take this sample mean and we can uh, actually just standardize it right away. So we wanna know the question, okay, first of all, the sample mean, we we came back, we got a sample, it's 70 degrees. Even though it's a two-tailed hypothesis test, we're really only interested in whether it's in the right-hand rejection region. Because our sample mean is bigger than our population mean under the null. We're only interested in in knowing whether it's in that right-hand tail. We don't have to figure out if it's in the left-hand tail, because it can't be, because it's bigger than the null. So if the probability that our sample mean, um, make sure I get this right, is uh, greater than 70, we can ask that question. What's the probability under the null of being greater than 70? If that probability is less than alpha over 2, we must be in the rejection region. So we're flipping this around, and we'll get rid of this for a minute. And personally, I find, it, especially when I teach this to the undergrads, I find it always helps for me to draw the normal distribution. Right? Under the null. This thing is going to be centered on 68, and there's some sample mean we got out here that's 70. This is our sample mean. What's the probability in this tail? Greater than that. If this probability if this probability is less than uh, alpha over 2, then we must reject. because we've got to be in that zone of, un- of unusually rare. Okay? No need to calculate the other one. Well, we can do the same thing that we always do, which is convert these things to z-scores. So z is equal to x-bar minus mu under the null divided by the standard error of the mean. We can put in our values. We've got 70 and 68 and 0.6. And if we solve that, we get 3.33. That's a corresponding z-score. So then we can replace this question here with, what's the probability of uh, a z being greater than 0. Point, did I say 3.33? Okay. So all we've done by converting our, our, um, our random variable here that follows a normal distribution with this mean and standard deviation, we convert it to a standard normal random variable, and we just restate the question in terms of the standard normal variable. What we've done is we've taken this and replaced that with zero, and this with 3.33, and we wanna know the probability to the right of that. To do that in R, now we wanna calculate a probability. We're gonna use the P norm function and you put in the quantile 3.33 now what the function is going to return by default is the probability to the left of that most statistical tables and functions assume you want to know the probability to the left and that's what they give you of course you can find the probability to the right by just doing 1 minus that okay? just if you were to type that into R you would get Okay. So getting that value, uh, a mean of 70 or greater, would happen less than 0.04 percent of the time. It's very unusual. That's strong evidence against your null hypothesis, and you reject your null and accept your alternative. That's the way we would normally evaluate these tests. And that's the way you probably learned it in your undergrad stats class, or many years moons ago if you did this in high school. Did you did stats in high school? Yeah. Not in 1980-something when I went to high school. I'll leave it as 1980-something. <laughs> Long time ago. I used to joke with my undergrads about, you know, so the IBM PC was invented in 1982 when you were very young. And they started, after a while, they looked at me and said, I wasn't even born in 1982. And then they started saying, it's not funny at all, because I don't think I was born in 92. <laughs> Wait, that's, yeah, there's probably undergrads right now that weren't born in 1992. Isn't that frightening? You guys were all born in 92. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, anyway, bad topic for old people like me. Any questions about this? Okay, now I want to finish up by talking a little bit about statistical power. Because the purpose of doing statistical hypothesis testing is to learn something. If we never reject our null hypotheses, it means we obviously have not collected enough data to actually learn something about our system. And that's a waste of time and energy. And as much as I'm sure you all love grad school, you'd like to go somewhere else someday. Although, that doesn't always happen. Look at me. I went to grad school and then I got a faculty position, I'll stay here forever. Maybe, depends on how much I like it. Anyway, what if the true population mean is actually equal to 70 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, the way this, remember the the trick is, when we take a sample, we're sampling from the real population. So when we collect a sample, our sample mean is coming from the real sampling distribution, not the one under the null. The, the, the interesting dichotomy about hypothesis testing is that we make our decisions based on the sampling distribution under the null, but we actually are getting data from the real world, and the, sa- the samples are coming from the real sampling distribution. So there's, again, there's two distributions here that we're working with. The one that we hypothesize might be true and the one that actually is true. So, under the null hypothesis, we had the sampling distribution that's centered on 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And under our null hypothesis, we established these rejection regions out here. Okay. And we went and took a sample. Well, the sample came from the real sampling distribution of the mean. And it, it centered on Seventy out here So if I know the true sampling distribution I can ask you a question. What is the probability that we will reject our null hypothesis? You can tell me by looking at these two distributions We're going to reject our null hypothesis if it falls in these two tails here If it falls in this zone, here or greater, so it's greater than this one, or if it falls less than this. Okay? Now given this is th- so this is the, the sampling distribution under the null, and this is the sampling dist- distribution under truth. If I take a sample, which distribution is it coming from, the one on the right? What's the probability, if this is the true sampling distribution, of getting a sample mean down here? It's so close to zero, it's functionally zero. So the probability I'm gonna reject my null hypothesis is the probability to the right of this line from the actual sampling distribution. And you can actually calculate that if you can calculate this X bar critical upper. You can actually calculate that. So this probab- the, the interesting thing is this probability here, This probability is the probability that I'm going to make a mistake. Okay. This is a mistake. If I draw a sample mean and it falls, it's coming from this distribution, it falls below the critical upper in this zone, I'm drawing all my decisions from what I think the sampling distribution is under the null hypothesis. And if it falls in this zone, I won't reject the null. And that mistake we call um, a a, uh, type 2 error, or beta, the probability of a type 2 error. All right. So you you should remember from your basic stats class this error matrix that we can have with any hypothesis test. So the error matrix, I usually draw it wrong, so I'm going to just reference my notes. Alright, so here is our action, and here's the truth about the null hypothesis. If the null hypothesis is actually true, but we reject it, we make a mistake. If our null hypothesis is actually false, but we fail to reject it, we also make a mistake. And here we're okay. And here we're okay. We've made the right decision. And what I've just said is that this situation here, our null hypothesis is false, but we fail to reject it. This error rate we call beta which is a type 2 error. Do we know the probability of making this type 1 error? We do, because we choose it. This thing is called alpha. If the null hypothesis is true, then 5% or alpha percent of the time Sample means will come from beyond my, in my rejection region. And we'll reject the null even though it's true. This rejection rate you control by choosing alpha. The thing that we really want to do in hypothesis testing is reject false null hypotheses. And the probability of doing that, one minus beta, is called statistical power. And you should concern yourself with power in everything you do with statistics. Because I can't imagine that you would go out and collect data and subject them to statistics and not really care if you rejected any false null hypotheses. <clears throat> Presumably, you're out here to discover things. right? Now, the, here's, the, here's the trick. There's some things that we need to remember about this. So the first one is you control... control alpha, and you don't know um, beta unless you know truth. But we can make a guess, oftentimes. You never know this type two error probability, or conversely, the power of any statistical test, unless you know what truth is. You can calculate it for hypothetical values. And so in fact, you can calculate the, um, the minimum deviation that your truth has to be before you can detect it with a given statistical test. That's called post hoc power analysis. So what I want you to see is that first, or second I should say, is that alpha and beta are related. Control doesn't have two L's, does it? All right. What happens if you change alpha? If you make it smaller, like instead of 0.05, 0.01? Move it out there. Excuse me, I'm just getting so excited. You make beta bigger. The flip side is if you make alpha larger, you make beta smaller, but you increase the probability of having a type one error. So why do we pick 0.05? Because that's most people's BS detector, was my, my argument for it. If you make it smaller, what's one way to make this test more powerful without changing alpha? There's, there's actually more than one way. Increase your sample size. So if you want to make the test more powerful, you increase your sample size. How does that work? Because if you increase the sample size, remember the the uh, standard deviation of this distribution is equal to the standard deviation of population divided by the square root of the sample size. That thing is fixed and unknown. We estimate it with a a sample uh, standard deviation. This thing you get to choose. If this thing goes up, this thing goes down, and these distributions become narrower, that has to reduce beta because the distribution becomes narrower. It pulls these distributions apart. So one way to increase the power of your test is increase your sample size. Another way that that costs you nothing, if you can, is make your hypothesis test one-sided. If we knew that we're only concerned if the average annual temperature was greater than 68, we could have put all of our probability in the right tail instead of splitting it over here And that would pull the critical value to the left and decrease beta and increase power. So if you can, think carefully about your hypothesis test. If you're really only interested in one tail, put all your probability in one tail. The other one is sample size. And we'll talk about in regression how we can change that. The other trick, uh, the other thing I want you to know, so I guess that was... um, Three was... uh, if you in, increase n, uh, I don't need the arrow, then power increases. Uh, uh, use one tailed if you can. And the last point I want to make is that as the true population mean approaches the the population mean under the null hypothesis, what happens here? If truth moves closer to our null hypothesis, then this this side of the distribution, our type 2 error rate, goes up. And our power goes down. So as the true mean approaches the mean under the null, your power declines. And I believe the... the um, the effective definition of an effect size, we're often interested in a minimum effect size. If we describe the difference between truth and this as an effect, then the, we can actually calculate with a given statistical test the minimum effect that, we could dist- we, that would result in the rejection of our null. How far away does truth have to be from our null before we know we're going to reject it? We can, we can slide this distribution over and calculate that for a given um, alpha level our minima, thats called post hoc power analysis, might guide you on future studies of how you can can collect sample sizes. So as the true mean approaches the mean under the null, your um, type 2 error rate goes up and your power declines, and so you can think about this ahead of the time. Most of the time we have some idea about the variance of our population. If you know that the effect is relatively small, then you better increase your sample size or else you're going to not have very much power. And you can think about this ahead of time when you do studies. In basic sampling, we calculate minimum sample sizes to get certain confidence interval limits, for example. And there's a whole field of power study, power analysis that you can, if you're interested, you can dig into to help you design studies so that you collect a useful, a statistically powerful sample size for any given test. This, of course, implies that you know what you're going to test before you design the study. And that's not always the case, particularly when you show up at grad school and your advisor says, by the way, here's the data from five years ago that you're going to be analyzing for your thesis or dissertation. You often don't have a choice. But if you do have a choice, think about that very carefully. The flip side too is sometimes you can actually continue to collect data until you're pretty sure you've got enough and you don't have to do another year, and we're doing that in one of, our, one of my studies right now. Uh, because we've collected data on soils and we may not need to run any more samples through the EA to get soil carbon if we have enough power already. The danger on the other side is keep analyzing your data until you get the result you want. That's a very bad thing. There's a famous saying which is if you torture your data long enough they will confess. It's true for people too, apparently. Uh, If you torture your data long enough they will confess. Okay, does this make sense? I forgot number 5 down here. As mu approaches mu under the null hypothesis, power goes down. All right, Okay. If there are no questions, we're going to leave it there. That is the review of basic statistics. Of course, if we carried on from this, we would talk about the variety of hypothesis tests you might do, tests of means. We'll talk about this in the context of regression quite a bit. We can do, uh, you can do tests for categorical variables, for example, and you can get into tests of relationships, that's regression. ANOVA is another way to test multiple means simultaneously, and uh, there are whole classes on those branches. The reason I like to bring this piece up here is because uh, I never really actually understood this instinctively until Probably was a PhD student was taking banging my head against it long enough that I went, Oh, that's how everything goes together. Yes, sir. Uh, before we move on, just a quick question, is there a threshold power that you uh kind of feel comfortable with in terms of the distinction between data being meaningful and data being junk? Uh my philosophy is that you always have so of course you don't know power unless you know truth. You can calculate prospective power for certain uh, data sets, and you can design sample sizes to increase prospective power. Uh, you still ultimately are limited by this thing. And we'll talk, the better example is in, um, have any of you taken experimental design class? Ta- ta- ever heard the term Bonferroni correction? Yeah. yeah so. So when you do multiple, and we do this in regression, by the way, because we often test multiple uh, coefficients simultaneously. In any given statistical test, you can conserve alpha, but if you do a whole variety of statistical tests, the question becomes, what's my probability of a type one error for the whole set? And that probability goes up almost exponentially when you subject your data to multiple tests. That's the torture them long enough they will confess. Because you can do that and you can hide it, you don't have to reveal it in any paper you write. You, know, you, you go away quietly and torture your data long enough, you eventually make a type one error. The statistical evidence that you bring to any research problem is just part of the story that you tell. It's very entrenched in our scientific method. We use statistics all the time, and you don't usually publish too many papers, at least in, in sort of traditional Hard science without it, but ultimately, there's always at least an alpha probability that you've made a mistake. Maybe even far larger than alpha because you didn't think to make a Bonferroni correction. And I worry more about the, how my data, my statistics fit into the broader <laughs> research question that I'm asking. And usually very few of us have the luxury of really knowing exactly what statistics we're going to use before we collect any data. I have done only very few power analyses. I think about power all the time, but I've only only done very few, and I forget how to do them because the literature says power of 0.8 is, uh, under a probability of 0.8 or greater is good enough of rejecting your null under certain, I think it's most folks accept. You get the same flip side. You don't wanna collect too much data, right? Take a sample of 10 trillion, probably gonna reject any null hypothesis, and I forgot to mention that. The flip side to this whole thing is as, as as sample size goes up, power increases, which is that you, if you have enough money, you can collect a sample so large you can reject any trivial null hypothesis. I mean, n- multiple decimal places. You can start finding differences that are statistically significant but practically meaningless. And, and so you can misuse statistics in more way than one. Forgetting a Bonferroni correction but also just collecting enough data. And we, i've done some work in model validation we often do this for for model validation uh, if you collect enough data you guess ever seen these one-to-one plots in, in ecological studies you know we make a prediction over here actually we'll put down a measurement here and we'll have a prediction up here and if our model is good then for any given measured value we get a prediction predicted value that lines up on this magical thing called the one-to-one line, right? Well, if you if you use regression to fit to estimate this line, you're going to get something that looks a little different, and your confidence in your regression line goes up with sample size, just for the same reasons we've talked about. And so, if you if you calculate the slope of this regression line, um, your estimated value of, of the slope and you, you wanna do a statistical test to see if that is different from one, if you just keep sampling, keep running your model and taking measurements, eventually, you'll get a sample size large enough that you can find any slope different from one. It could be 1.00001, zero, 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 one. which for most people is equivalent to one. The perfection, right? But if you collect enough data, you can find You're never gonna get exactly one because there's always randomness in systems. And we'll we'll get to an example of that. So be careful. What's the other saying? There's lies, there's damned lies, and then there's statistics. You heard that one before? I don't like to repeat that one. No, you can get enough power that you can reject a sample line that is extremely close to one. So uh, my postdoc and I have submitted a, a model validation paper and what we've done is we've compared um, measurements of breast height diameter of trees to predictions from a model that uses a stump measurement. So we've, we've calculated all these measured DBHs and we've, we've got these predicted. Right? And I work with models in my research that try to predict tree diameter growth and diameter growth is highly variable. So if I were to put measured and predicted out here, I'd get a cloud of data. But actually, one thing you know for sure is if you know the stump diameter of a tree, is, if the diameter of a stump is, let's say, 8 inches, the dbH of the tree is probably not less than 8 inches. <laughs> you know a lot about it. You, know, you have a lot of information on tree diameter just from measuring. So in fact, when we, when we plot these points, we get a pretty tight clustering of, of observations from our simple regression model. And so you fit a regression line to that and you get a slope of 1.02 or maybe 0.98 or something when we fit these regression lines, very, very close to one. It doesn't take very much data for us to find those, however, to still be different from one, which suggests our model is biased somehow. It doesn't take very much data because the data are so tightly clustered, we have a lot of confidence in the regression line. And, and uh, so that's a situation where we, we have a lot of statistical power right off the bat. This is a really common way that models are validated in in ecology and applied ecology. These one-to-one plots. Okay. So what I want to do next is uh, is show you. Um, how are we doing for time? Well, going slower than I thought. Too many good questions. You know the problem with taking a class is that the instructor has all the power. Mwahaha. Come on all right I want to show you how to answer the homework problem in R. It's actually uh, quite easy. but you've got to start somewhere and that's actually the challenge with computing usually is, is getting over that initial hump. Okay, so the textbook. Homework problem number 1-1 one, one says, where is this gone? Now we've lost it. NBA salary data file contains salary information for 214 guards in the National Basketball Association, blah, 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 and ask some questions about how to manipulate those data. So let's do this switch user and see if that works. There we go. Interesting. It's not centered. Uh, all right. So the first question is, do oh. I have R installed in this computer? Let's see. Does not look like. Do you see R down there? No R. All right. So first, let's see if we can't fix the screen resolution, so it's not so horrible. Uh, built in and here. Oh yeah. It went, we'll go up there. How's that? Let's see if that works. Oh, you prefer it bigger than that, I imagine. What's, what's squarer than that? Squarer, is that a word? 480 by 1050? How's that? Will that work? Can you see that? Sure. Okay. So if you want to get R, go to uh, CRAN dot and I guess that'll work better if I turn on the internet. And you can download R for any platform that you have um, and you can do all, you, you should be able to do pretty much everything in this um, assignment using uh, JMP or some other statistical package. I don't know if you guys saw there was an email that went out in Tech Topics today but the University now has a site license page and I think JMP may be one of the software packages you can download for free from the university. Uh, take a look at the um, the tech uh, today uh, when you get a chance. So I'm going to download R for Mac OS 10. Frisbee Sailing. That's that's pretty cool, whatever that means. And then I also want to get R Studio. But I don't need to do that to show you the answers to the homework. i going to download. Still downloading. Wow, very very fast today. Okay, I really like our studio. Um, it's just partly just because I've been an R user for ten or twelve years, and and it's only gotten really uh, gorgeous for most of this uh, in the recent. Past and R studio is updated regularly. It was broken for Mavericks when they came up with a new OS, Apple OS. Uh, they fixed it within three weeks or something, which was never like that before. Okay, we're almost downloading R. Boy, R's not that big. I don't know why it's so slow. There we go. Is it going to pop open for me? All right, there's R. Uh, if you install with a Mac installer, there's always uh, uh, an op- when you get to the install button, there's always a customize button down here that I tend to miss. They put it over here on the left where you don't see it, and you can choose whether you want to have all the pieces. This TCLTK is a package you might need to do some of the um, help files, and if you want the Argui, you don't have to have it. I never use it, so I prefer to get rid to not install it. Um, what happens, of course, is that files get assigned to certain uh, file extensions and so you start d- double-clicking on things and then you get the argui when you really didn't want to. You can usually get over that, but I just try not to install anything on my computer that I don't need. Okay, so I've written a script here to do the homework problem and I'll email it to you all. Uh, and it's got the answers to every one of the... to, to problem 1.1. But of course, I haven't brought it down from my computer in my office yet. It's all Michelle's fault because I lent her my laptop in the hour before class. It's not her fault at all, actually. <laughs> I'm just saying that because I don't like to take blame for anything. Uh, there is an, there is a saying in grad school, by the way. If everything goes well, it's the credit goes to your advisor. If everything go, thing goes poorly, then the pro, you know the credit goes to you. So be careful about that. You all right. <coughs> Exactly. So here's the R script I wrote. Um, my regression homework. And here is the homework script, which of course will only open in a text editor because I didn't put uh, the R GUI in. All right. Okay, so I'll, I will email this, which I never use. Which I, I will email this to all of you, but I just wanted to show you briefly how, how it works. Is that big enough? You want more? Okay. So I've got some preliminaries. This rm list equals ls, I tend to put that at the top of all my scripts, so that if I run the script, it it executes. And the reason for that is, what rm is, is the remove function in R. That deletes all of my current R objects. The reason to do that is to make sure that I haven't got some data frame or or a variable stored in there that holds old data that are not correct. It forces me to rerun my preliminaries every time because it wipes the memory clean. So I put that in all my scripts. And then I'm using the read.csv command to read in the NBA salary that I downloaded from the web page. This little bit here with the dot slash, that's a Unix path name trick. It just tells it to The dot means that whatever the current active directory is, and then text data is a subfolder. If you write your own, you won't need to have a path usually if you just store all your files in one place. But you can see from my screen here, or from my uh, file browser, that I've actually got a folder up there called text data, where I put all the data sets for the text, rather than have them all in the same directory. So this little path just says, go get them from that folder. And then these are the answers to the individual problems. Uh, I'm using the histogram function to answer the first problem, and that's just, you just have to answer it. I'm using the QQ norm function to do the QQ plot, and then I'm generating a new histogram with the log transforms, and I've done it two different ways, and then used the QQ function on the log. If you've read the problem, this will make sense. If you haven't, um, we'll go through it. It's just I'm running out of time, and I'm sorry about that. What is the NBA? Uh, National Basketball Association. They've got the uh, yeah. I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it for you. So, the uh, the NBA data uh, contains salary information for 214 guards. I don't know anything about. Um, do I want? No, I don't need xcode. I don't know. I don't know much about bit, basketball. Sorry. What are guards? They must guard. Uh, the National Basketball Association obtained from USA Today salary database and they've, and they've asked us to generate a histogram, so let's open that uh, folder. If you use studio to open and you go to and uh, navigate through to your folder wherever you've stored all your files, it will not necessarily set the path to that folder. So I'm going to open that R script and you'll see it now appearing in studio. but the path name may not may just be set, meaning the default folder it looks in may be set to the folder that uh, whatever the default is for Windows or Mac, whatever you've done. So there is an option up here, uh, session, there we go. Session, set working directory to source file location. This should be common on Windows and Mac and Linux if you're a Linux user. If you do that, it actually executes an an R command. You See it popped up here? Set working directory and there's the path, this ugly long path. If 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 you have RStudio set by default to be the application that opens R scripts, it should do that automatically every time. You shouldn't have to do it. But if you get weird results, you gotta think that might be the cause. Okay. And so, if I want to run this uh, line of R code, I just click the submit button. And those of you who were in the recitation last week, we did go through these things. So what I've just run is a piece of code that says NBA that loads the data, copies it down to the R console, and then you see NBA appears up on the right in the R environment, and if you click on that, it actually runs the view command down here and there's the data. It's got the got, data frame you can actually see over there. It's got 214 observations, three variables, player, team, and salary. R will have probably made these factors and that will just be a numeric vector. So I can close it or just leave it open, doesn't matter, and go back to my script. So to create a histogram, so problem 1.1a says create, construct a histogram of the salary available Variable in thousands of dollars, and I guess I didn't I didn't do that. I did salary in dollars I should have transformed it. I used the histogram uh, <clears throat> command in one step, and I put a couple options in there Which I just wanted you to see one of them is x lab that that gives it an X axis label R will have a default if you don't do that, but you might want to overwrite it and main is the title I actually did the homework problem wrong because It says to construct the histogram in thousands, so if I go down here I'll bring the command back up. I can actually just edit this thing and divide it by thousand down here, and I'll just it'll just change the axis. And of course I should change the axis label to say dollars and thousands there. Right? Pretty slick graphic, like that, with one command in R. The, what I wanted to point out here. I'm sorry it's small, I'll figure out how to make this bigger, is that you can actually do numeric operations inside functions. R evaluates things hierarchically. The first thing it does is it goes and gets this column, this vector, from the data frame. Then it divides it by 1,000. Then it gives it to the hist function. So it does it hierarchically. There's nothing that says you have to do all these steps separately. Problem B says, what would we expect a histogram to look like if the data were normal? Bell-shaped? It's not bell-shaped. All right, C says construct a QQ plot. If you read the text, the QQ plot is a quantile-quantile plot. And what it does is it shows the cumulative quantiles of your data against the theoretical quantiles if the data followed a normal distribution. It's kind of <laughs> like that, that one-to-one plot I put up here. If your data are normally distributed, then the cumulative distribution, which is just adding them all up by the, by the size class, should match what you'd expect from a normal. And if that's true, then it should be a straight line. It's clearly not a straight line, it's right skewed. So just more evidence, and we'll use QQ plots to diagnose normality assumptions in regression later on. So more evidence that uh, the data don't follow a normal. All right, so I've answered that question. So number E says, compute the natural logarithm of quarterback salaries and construct a histogram I've done this two ways. One is to do it by just putting the natural log function inside the hist command. Again, just to show you, you can do this hierarchically. The trick here is that I've never actually changed the salary, the column, in the data frame. It's still in its original units. I've on the fly taken a natural logarithm of it using the log function, given it to the hist function, which is then plotted it. And that looks more normally distributed. What I wanted to show you is there is another way, which is to do it in two steps. You get the same answer. Here I've used the log command to take the natural log of the salary column from the NBA data frame. And I've assigned it to a new column called LN salary in the data frame. Now if we open that NBA, and I need to let you go because we're a few minutes over. You'll see there's now a new column in the data frame called LN salary. You can create many columns if you want. I try not to unless I really need, need them because your data frames get very big and eventually you're scrolling all over trying to remember what you called the column call names because eventually you need to refer to them and you don't remember what they're called. And, but just to show you, there's another way to do it. Okay. And then the last question was just to do a QQ norm on that. And you see the QQ norm is pretty close to a straight line. Now, all right. There's an R function for everything. I've already gotten a couple emails. Robert, I don't know how to do this. If you, if you you literally look at the problem, if you don't know how to do it, send me an email or come to the recitation on Thursday. Uh, I could give you a long instru- long lesson on how to do this in R, and you'd be really really bored. So we won't do that. You just ask, and I'll tell you what I know. If I don't know, then we'll look it up together. Okay? Sorry I went over a few minutes there. I need to let you go. Um, I thought we'd get to regression today. We did, and we definitely will on Friday. We'll start with simple linear regression, and we'll move along. Homework's on the website. New readings. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, please let me know. Otherwise, have a good day.